Welcome to Midland Free, everybody. We're delighted you're here. We hope that you will continue to worship with us. And I'm told that there are people who came here today exclusively for this service all the way from Scotland, even from China and India and Sanford and all the way up. Yeah. Even in the UP. So regardless of what foreign culture you may be from, we are glad you're here. The man with the yellow hat had prepared a splendid, splendid party. There were streamers, games, people, balloons, presents... And George was having so much fun. But he was still a little confused. Who in the world could all of this be for? Well, just then, the man with the yellow hat walked out with a giant birthday cake, and everybody started singing, Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear George. (laughs) Happy birthday to you. And sure enough, George couldn't believe it. He was so surprised. He was so overwhelmed. He was so blown away that all of this was for him. What joy and what a tremendous surprise. Why it was so overwhelming. It was almost too much to bear, even for a little monkey. But the man assured him, George, believe it. It's for you. Today we're going to look at the resurrection in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And what we will see is what amazing joy and excitement that the resurrection believes brings. It's, it's, it's so much that at some point it almost feels overwhelming and it's too hard for us to accept. And yet, the Apostle Paul is going to tell us today, hey, believe it. Believe it. It's for you. The way that we're going to structure this sermon is in three basic movements. We're going to start with the Gospel and just say, here's what it is. Point number one is going to be the Gospel. This is what it is. And then point number two, and in some sense three, is basically going to be the implications. And that is we should believe it and live it. We should believe it and live it. So very simple, very clear, very straightforward. Three points. The gospel, believe it, live it. We're going to walk through the gospel, show you what that is, and then we're going to flesh it out and show you what it means for you in your lives. So if you brought a Bible this morning, we'd invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And if that's a little tricky to find, you can find it on our uh, blue Bibles, which are in the back there on page 1222. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15 or page 122, or just type it into your electronic Bible, whatever's easiest for you to do. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I'm just going to read the first 11 verses, and then as we go through the sermon, I'll kind of summarize and expound the others, but we're going to focus on the gospel, particularly in the first 11 verses of this chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It says this. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel 
I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word which I preached to you, unless, of course, you believed in vain. For I delivered as to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. For I myself am the least of the apostles, and I feel unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believe. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Today we look at the gospel and we see that the first thing Paul says about it is that it is of first importance. The first and very most important thing in all the world is to bring glory to God, and we do that through the proclamation of His Word, which we call the Gospel. Now, for those of you who have been in church a long time, you're probably familiar with that term, but for those of you who aren't, well, let me flesh it out a little this morning. A couple weeks ago, we were in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and just through the repetition of the term, the Apostle made it very clear that this was his primary focus in life. I think we have a screenshot of that. And in this chapter, what we saw was that over and over again, he is emphasizing this thing which we call the gospel. Every time you see the newspaper, it says good news, which is basically what the word gospel means. It is the good news of Jesus Christ. Now that good news has three different parts, and I want to walk you through those parts this morning and make it very clear to you who uh, are not familiar with it, and reaffirm it for those of you who are. So first of all, the gospel. What is it? What is the gospel? Well, if you think of an egg, an egg has three parts, and so too the gospel, and there is the shell or the outer part, and that shell is this, basically that Jesus died. Look at verses 3 and 4. It says this. It says, The gospel, this is what I proclaimed, or this is what I preached to you, that the gospel is that Christ died, that's the first part, for our sins in accordance with the Scripture. And then the second part is that He was buried. And then the third part is that He was raised. So the three parts of this egg, if you will, the shell, the white, and the yolk, is the death, the burial, and the resurrection. Those are the three essential elements or key ingredients to the gospel. If you don't have All of those together at the same time you don't have the gospel. Death, burial, and resurrection. So let's look at the death part uh, first of all then, part one, death. Um, As you can imagine, Satan, who opposes the good news, who opposes Christ and everything he stands for, wants to undermine the gospel. So he's going to go at each one of these in different ways. The death, the burial, and the resurrection to try to undermine or undercut them so that you do not believe them. 
Now, the first of which is this. Under the death, he will, say, he will have people say, well, Jesus didn't really die. Instead, he was merely you know, unconscious or he swooned and he went to this sort of you know, uh, incapacitated state, but he wasn't fully dead. Therefore, when he went into the tomb, as a result, he sort of revived under the cool, moist air and he came back around again. So he didn't really die. But what is the truth of the matter? Well, if you look at this, you know, there are a lot of swoon theories out there, but basically it is the Romans who killed Jesus, and in fact, they were pretty good at it. They were good at killing people. They knew what they were doing. They were accomplished, and that's how they conquered the, the majority of the Middle East, is by killing people. They knew how to do it, and they were very effective. And so... To say that Jesus merely swooned is to insult the intelligence of this enormous empire from which we get some of the greatest literature in the history of mankind. Moreover, it's also basically ignoring the medical, scientific, historical facts, which is this. Look, if you look up uh, Lee Strobel, the award-winning journalist and legal editor of the Chicago Tribune's uh, research on this subject, you will see that he pursues each one of the um, things that Christ endured throughout the Passion Week from a medical perspective and says that scientifically and medically there is no way possible for a single human being to endure all of this without dying. It just can't happen. So Jesus died. If you need more proof, you can look up William Craig's The Empty Tomb of Jesus. Jesus died. It's a scientific historical fact. He really died. Now, why did he do that? Well, it was necessary. It was absolutely necessary. Look, death is the penalty for the sin. God told us this from the very beginning. He said, hey, look, the wages of sin is death. If you sin, if you disobey, you die. That's just what happens. There's no getting around it. This is the way this thing works. Well, of course, we didn't, we didn't listen. We didn't obey. And as a result, our sins separated us from God. They immediately caused a spiritual death and they introduced physical death into the world. But we, having experienced and having known what true life was, still longed for eternal life. We did not want to die. And each of us, in our own way, feel that in some sense in our spirits even today. We know that death is unnatural, that it is the unnatural tearing and ripping apart of the whole of the human uh, being. And consequently, we rebel against that, and we want deliverance from it and as you know as you read throughout the scriptures that God in his grace has provided a way for this now he didn't do it in one lump sum at the very beginning but instead he gradually and progressively worked out his redemptive plan and the way he initiated it in the old testament was through the sacrificial system in which we saw the sacrifice of bulls, of goats, and lambs, and other sacrificial animals. Why? Because God is some weird, sadistic monster that enjoys cruelty to animals? No. But because he said from the very beginning, look, if you sin, you die. Well, the life of the creature is in the blood, and therefore there is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. There has to be blood shed. There has to be death in order to atone for sin. And so this sacrificial system is set up so that repeatedly, over time, people can use the blood of goats and bulls and lambs and heifers to temporarily cover 
and atone for their sins. But this was only the beginning. And the larger purpose or the ultimate fulfillment of this plan was in God's only Son, Jesus Christ, who would complete and fulfill the law by becoming the final sacrifice. Thus, by Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, he accomplishes what no animal could ever do. He enters once for all into the holy place with his own blood having obtained an eternal redemption. Thus, Jesus' work on the cross completes the will of the Father and the work of the atonement. So the first point of the gospel, absolutely necessary, is the fact that Jesus died. It's what sin requires. It's the system that God set up. And it's the only way to get the forgiveness of sins. Jesus had to die. He died fully dead. Now the second part of that egg, if you will, the the white, is that Jesus was buried. Now again, some people will try to undermine this and they'll say, well, the body wasn't buried. Instead, it was stolen or it was hidden or it was lost. And therefore, the disciples were able to sort of manipulate that and say, oh, look, he's not in the tomb. Therefore, he must have arisen. And they used it to serve their own ends. But the reality is this, is that, yes, he was buried. Jesus' own followers risked a tremendous amount of money and uh, their well-being and very lives to ask for his body. They buried him, and then the Romans sealed him in the grave. And no Roman soldier in his right mind is going to be willing to risk his career, yea, even his neck, for some silly Jewish fisherman. It's just not going to happen. The Romans are smart people. They know how to kill people. They know how to imprison people. And they do it rather effectively. They did not lose the body of one of the most high-profile criminals in all of history, if you will. They didn't lose Jesus. He was buried. He was sealed in the tomb. And that is essential because that is a double confirmation of his death. We know for certain that he died. We know for certain that he went into the tomb. We know for certain that it was sealed And there was no getting out under any natural circumstances. That then is what makes this third point so incredible, so outrageous, so over the top and insane. It is the one claim that is unique to Christianity that no other religion in the entire world even comes close to. We say that our founder was raised from the dead. Now, notice here, very carefully, this gets a little bit technical, but I think you'll appreciate this. This is the passive voice. Now, let me ask you a question you don't have to answer out loud. Did Jesus bury himself? No. Who buried him? Someone else. Why? Because we read in the text that he was buried, right? That's a passive voice, that someone else did the action to him. Now, in the same way, Here's where we get a bit theological. Are you ready? In the same way, Jesus was raised. Did then Jesus raise himself? No. Somebody else raised Jesus. Galatians 1.1 tells us that the Father raised the Son from the dead. Here, Paul uses the passive voice, which theologians call the theological passive, basically to show you that God the Father did the action. 
throughout this whole redemptive narrative, throughout the salvific drama of the Bible, what we see is this, is that in fact, as John 3.16 says, it is God the Father who loved the world. It is God the Father who sent the Son. The Son then submitted to the will of the Father. The Father had Him crucified and the Father raised Him from the dead. It is the Father's will and action that leads the whole redemptive motif. And it's an absolutely amazing thing because, you know, we raise our children teaching them to sing, Jesus loves me, right? You ready? Jesus loves me. You probably know that song. But I challenge you to look through Scripture and actually find a verse that says that. It's actually kind of hard. Now, we do know that Jesus loves us because... He is one with the Father, and there is a spot in Scripture where we infer from his statement which says that uh, greater love hath no man than this, and he lay down his life for his friends, and therefore you're my friends, and therefore then I love you, because you can see by my action that I am loving you. But there's actually, I don't know of any direct statement where Jesus says, I love you. What we instead have is John 3.16 and others that says, the Father loves us. And what an amazing thing as this, you know, as a father, to be putting your child to bed at night and kiss him on the head and say goodbye. That God the Father did this eternally for us in His Son. Not just for the night, but for the entire week of the Passion, the death, the burial, and the crucifixion of His own Son. God the Father loves you. God the Father sent the Son. God the Father crucified Him. And God the Father raised Him. From the dead. Jesus died. Jesus was buried. And Jesus was raised from the dead. Now, this is, I would say, and I think many would as well, that this is the sine qua non, or the without this nothing, or the absolute essential ingredient of Christianity is the resurrection. John MacArthur says it like this. He says, the resurrection is the pivot on which all of Christianity turns, without which none of the other truths would even matter. In other words, the whole of the New Testament rests on this historical fact. It is so important that it cannot be overstated. Without this, nothing. But because of this, then everything we claim absolutely must be true. If you can get over the resurrection, you can get over anything. You can believe that Christ created the world. You can believe that there is an eternity. You can believe anything if you can believe the resurrection. It is the proof and vindication of the effectiveness of Christ's sacrifice and His atonement and the acceptability of it unto the Father. This then is how the Apostle says it in Philippians chapter 2. He says this, he says, Since Christ was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, therefore, as a result, here's the vindication, here's the proof, God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father." The resurrection is the proof and vindication of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Of His deity and His sacrifice. 
of his eternality and of his death. It means basically that Jesus is for real. That he's real. If he just died, if he just was buried, he is no different than any other man. But because he has risen from the dead, then that is something you have to deal with. The gospel is the inseparable alliance between the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Death was necessary as the consequence and punishment for our sin. The burial was the double confirmation and the resurrection is the proof and vindication. Now, kiddos, if you were at the Easter egg hunt yesterday, um, you heard Pastor Chuck ask a question, and he asked you this. He said, what does super-duper, curious George... And the resurrection have in common. In the next few moments, you're going to have that answer for Pastor Chuck. So here, Pastor Chuck. So here we go. Verse three. It says this. It said Christ died. What? For our sins. The word for here is actually the Greek word huper. Now that may not mean anything to you right away, but basically that's very similar to our English word hyper. It is a preposition which in one sense can be, m- mean over the top. In another sense can mean in the place of or on behalf of or for. So what happens then is when you chase this word down throughout the New Testament, it's really cool because what you read is like in Romans 5, 6 through 8. Listen to the word for here as I read it. He said, okay, now this is a different for at the start, but I'll emphasize the rest. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died, huper, for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in this while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So, Chase this word down throughout the New Testament. What you see is this incredible act of God, this super duper hooper that shows you his incredible grace and love. That he would actually die on our behalf for us. Super duper hooper. Now, every time you study the Bible, you learn something new. And what I like to do now is do two things. One is, I'm going to state it for you in a sense for the PhD, chemical engineer, super-duper intellectual, and then I'm going to move to the other side of the pulpit and explain it to you in terms of my five-year-old will understand. Okay? So, here's the short version of the intellectual. In this text, what we have in died, buried, and was raised is the um, aorist, aorist perfect. Okay? So if you're a Greek fan and you want to look that up, if you're super duper into the intellectual, you can look at these three terms that are essential to the resurrection and you can say, aorist, aorist, perfect. Impress your friends, strike fear in the heart of your enemies. There you go. All right? Now, if you are my son, this is what I would say to you. Duck, duck, goose. Okay? Duck, duck, goose. What do I mean by that? All right, you know the game, right? Duck, duck, goose. All the people sit around in a circle. One person is it. 
They go to the outside of the circle and they are the goose, so to speak. And they walk around the circle and they go duck, duck, duck. And then they come to the final person and they say goose. And they tap them on the head and take off running. And the whole game changes at that point. Everything changes. That is the aorist, aorist perfect. What you have is the duck. He was killed. He died. You have another duck. He was buried. Boom. Set point in time. Those are the aorist tense. But then you, the apostle, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, guided by God, decides, we're going to change at this point from aorist, aorist to perfect, because at the resurrection, the whole game changes. All of a sudden, the wheels are set in motion. We have gone from an event, an event that happened and happened, to all of a sudden something that is now not only something that happened, but it is an ongoing reality that will never end. Jesus Christ was killed. He died. He was buried. But now, right now, He is living and alive. He rose from the grave and the game is going on. Duck, duck, goose. Bang! Aorist, aorist, perfect. And the apostle is intentionally showing you this and so that's why we said at the Easter egg hunt yesterday, hey look, this whole sermon could be summed up like this. Um, basically, super-duper hooper, duck-duck-goose. If you go home today, you can remember that. You've got the resurrection. Super-duper-hooper, that is, hooper, on your behalf. Christ died for your sins. Duck-duck-goose. He died, he was buried, and then, boom, he rose from the grave, and everything changes. Super-duper-hooper, duck-duck-goose. Therefore, verse 58 says, 1 Corinthians 15:58 says, Therefore, my beloved, as a result of this victory, as a result of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. As a result of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, as a result of the gospel, therefore, here is the implication it has on our lives. We can live in a totally different way. In fact, we can truly live. Before we were just duck, duck, but all of a sudden now we are goose and the wheels have been set in motion and we can experience life in a whole new way. Look, if you look at the New Testament narrative of the Apostle Paul, what you see is this, is basically his life would be a complete waste of time, a total sham, and a miserable sacrifice were it not for the reality of the resurrection. People who like to say that the resurrection is a myth don't consider what the apostle actually went through. No myth would sustain someone through that kind of misery. People would not die for such a lie. In order for the apostle to go through and endure what he did, this had to be a concrete fact. And that is where this comes into our lives and the rubber meets the road on a daily basis. That the resurrection is not wishful thinking. It is not mere psychological feel-good sentimentalism. It is not transcendentalism. A philosophy or positive thinking would never do. 
But instead, it is the concrete reality, the guaranteed fact that overrides anything we're going through right now in life. Because it is real, because it is concrete, then therefore we can say that there is a greater reality than even the reality we are experiencing right now. So yes, what you're going through is difficult. Yes, the cancer is hard. Yes, the divorce is miserable. Yes, it is hard to pay the bills. And yes, things are bad. But what we see in the life of the Apostle Paul, and even modern saints like Corey Tin Boone, is that you can survive anything based on the guarantee of the resurrection, on the greater reality on the concrete fact that overrides any of the facts in your life right now. Now, I myself am a North American, and I've experienced some trouble, surgery, sacrifice, pain, whatever, but nothing compared to the Apostle, and nothing compared to people like Corey Tin Boone. And if you really want an example of someone who suffered, and suffered well for the cause of Christ, I would highly recommend to you the book, The Hiding Place by Corey Tin Boone, which gives her first-hand narrative of making through a German concentration camp. Even in those circumstances, she remained faithful to Christ and demonstrated how the resurrection gave her hope. The resurrection is the concrete reality which overrides anything in our lives. Therefore, as a result of this, then, therefore, we can be steadfast, we can be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing for certain that our labor is not in vain. Do you believe this? Do you really believe it? I mean, it's easy to say, right? I mean, yeah, intellectually I assent, I agree. But to actually believe it down to the core of your being, to affirm it in your innermost heart of hearts, so that when the days are so dark you cannot see through, you believe in the power of the resurrection. If you truly believe, then it makes an enormous difference in this life. It is something you see, something you believe, something you encounter, something you experience, a greater reality that overrides whatever it is that is your present reality. For as in Adam all die, so too in Christ all will be made alive. It is the beauty of perfect symmetry. It is poetry in motion. What happened to Adam, what he experienced in death, will hap- also happen to Christ, and what happened to Christ in resurrection also will happen to us. We have the encouragement and the guarantee of the resurrection. Paradise lost is paradise regained. Believe it. It's for you. Well, this is how it worked with the disciples. It was day three after the resurrection, you know, and they were messed up. They had seen everything that Jesus had gone through, and they were shaken down to their very core. They began to question not only the, uh, every, everything that they believed, but their whole reason for existence. And they wondered, could we be mistaken about this Jesus? I mean, what happened to the overthrow of Rome and the hopes of the new kingdom and the reestablishment of the Davidic monarchy? Is it all gone? Why such humiliation? Why such defeat? Why the crucifixion? How does that fit with our hopes for Messiah? 
Three words. Super, duper, hooper. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds we are healed. And then I wonder if they remembered the words of the apostle, which, or the prophet, which said, All we like sheep have gone astray. And then Jesus fills in the gap and says, Guess what? I am the good shepherd, and I lay down my life for the sheep. It's funny in a sense that they are so confused, isn't it? Because he told them in advance before any of this ever happened, Hey, look. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priest and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And they will kill him, and he will be raised again on the third day, and they were greatly distressed. But remember that little word, super, duper, hooper. Jesus brings it back again. He says, Hey guys, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. For in my Father's house are many rooms, and if it were not so, would I not have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, will I not come again and take you to be with myself, overcoming the initial separation of death and sin? Even in spite of the fact that he had told them this, the disciples still found it hard to believe. They were, like George, quite confused, even though they were the disciples. But to overcome their confusion at all that had gone on, in walks, not the man with the yellow hat, but the man with the purple sash. And he holds in his hands not a birthday cake, but instead two holes burning brightly, not with candles, but instead the Shekinah glory of God Himself. And then it became clear. Yes, you're confused. Yes, you're surprised. But oh, what joy this brings. Believe it, disciples. Believe it. Because all of this is for you. Praise be to God for the power of the resurrection. The super-duper-hooper duck-duck-goose. This changes everything. Father, we're so thankful for Your work in Your Son, Jesus. Sending Him to die on our behalf for the forgiveness of our sins. We praise You for that. Lord, You are good and You are good in every way and everything You do is right and true and just. We don't always understand and sometimes it's hard to see through the dark. But God, we pray that you would give us faith where our eyes fail to trust the glory and light of your resurrection. Thank you for sending your son. Thank you for raising him from the dead. Thank you for changing everything. We praise you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.